Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and I'm joined with Tom Bonet who's an army veteran and the founder of Kennel to Couch which is a non-profit for pit bulls and essentially re-homes them and assists them in I would imagine becoming family friendly so Tom thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on the show. I'd be curious about what your life was like in the army and I just thought I'd start by saying you know thanks for your service and I'm sure you've you've done a whole lot of good in the world. So what was it like for you there? And did it have anything to do with why you started the nonprofit? Uh, yes and no. So I spent 11 and a half years on active duty, uh, had a couple deployments, saw combat in Iraq and um, experienced a lot of things in Iraq that uh, stay with me for the rest of my life. I, I don't I didn't do anything in the army directly related to, to dogs or dog handling or anything to that effect. But certainly uh, after the army, dogs have become a big part of, of almost a, a therapy component to um, how I kind of handle mental health and things of that nature. So yeah, definitely they, they play a role uh, from the things I experienced in the army, even though there's no direct, direct relation. Do dogs really help with mental health then? You mentioned that it's a part of potentially your own therapy as well, so to speak. Is it true what they say about pets and animals? I think it's undisputable at this point. You know, there's there's so many organizations out there that specialize in training dogs specifically uh, to key into PTSD and anxiety and all of these things. So these therapy animals are... Uh, a, a proven technique for dealing with a lot of mental health issues, similar to equine therapy or other other animals that, that we use as, as part of our healing process, for sure. What are some of the misconceptions about pit bulls? Because there's a lot of things that we'll probably get wrong when it comes to dogs, but I imagine pit bulls are a bit more, I guess, more understood. I suppose. And what are some of the things that we get wrong? I think pit bulls are really a product of, of poor marketing or, or, or false marketing over the past few years. I mean, when I was growing up, I think a lot of people would remember that before the, the 80s, pit bulls were like America's dog. If you looked at Budweiser commercials, you saw Spuds McKenzie. If you saw Our Gang Comedy, you saw Spot. They were family dogs, they were this or that. And then in the 80s, there was a lot of police interaction uh, with a lot of the drug pandemics that we had where dogs were being used to, to guard drug houses. They were uncovering a lot of dog fighting rings. And so there was a lot of publicity uh, surrounding these negative interactions that with these dogs. And it, it's really stuck with them. Um, you know, if you look at the the common 
beliefs about pit bulls that they have locking jaws they have this that not, none of it is actually true uh, you know they have a they they rank pretty low down on the pressure per square inch on their their bite strength if you look at the temperament tests that the american kennel association does they rank second best of all dog breeds right under uh, labrador retrievers i think it's golden retrievers um 86 of pit bulls uh, pass their temperament tests so it's it's really just this this cycle of bad marketing that for some reason has been very sticky with them. When I was growing up, uh, pit bulls weren't the bad breed. If you if you kind of go back, there's a lot of different breeds that have been caught in this negative media cycle. Rottweilers were were the the evil breed for a while, and before that it was Doberman Pinschers, and it didn't really stick with them like like pit bulls did, um, and Pitbulls itself is almost like a misnomer. There's about 19 different breeds that pitbulls an umbrella term that covers about 19 different breeds of dog. Um, and if you go to a shelter, pitbulls are misidentified 70% of the time. Um, wow. you, you really can't tell if a dog has a pitbull, one of the pitbull breeds in it just by looking at them. But we only use visual identification in shelters. It's not like they're running them through DNA tests uh, like we do here at home. So a lot of them are misidentified. And then because of that, I think 60% of all dogs euthanized each year are pit bulls. So they, they really suffer from these um, biases in an, an overwhelming way when it, when it comes to euthanization rates and the um, amount that are put into shelters and things of that nature. So yeah, it's 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 a really tough problem to crack. I don't know that any other breed has really suffered from you know specific legislation being created to to ban them in certain places or uh, housing regulations when it comes to what breeds you can have. It's always pit bulls, right, that are banned, and it's just such a It's, it's a very ignorant way of thinking, you know, it's not really rooted in, in, in any scientific fact or, um, or statistic. It, there's, there's breed specific legislation that pops up, uh, and comes up for, for renewal in, in different counties all the time. And, you know, the amount of people that go to these government, um, council meetings and, and speak on behalf of the dogs and try to educate the, the government on where they're going wrong is, is kind of overwhelming. And when you listen to their arguments, you, you just think to yourself, how, how do these laws stay in place? It's, it's just by, by sheer, and it's almost like dog bigotry. Uh, when you think about the mental process and, and the, the, the labeling that goes on to, to keep these regulations in place. Uh, and, and it's these breed specific legislations that really, hurt the shelter operations and prevent people from getting these dogs out of the shelters and, and adopting them and, and whatnot. So it's, it's a tough problem uh, that, that these dogs and, and the breeds face. And I don't really think it'll get any better without a lot of education and, and a lot of work to kind of rehabilitate the image of, of these breeds and in, in the public's eye and the, the, the damage is, is done more so through the media than anything else, you know, the way that it's reported. It, 
every every dog breed bites people, but you know when a when a when a Chihuahua bites someone, it usually doesn't end up on the nightly news. <laughs> no, so no. you know, ask any veterinarian what the uh, most violent breed of dog is. I think Chihuahua is going to you know rank at the top. So. <laughs> rank pretty low down yeah what why do you think it sticks around why do you think the the pr of pitbull actually sticks and gets anywhere is it just a it's something that somebody heard and they've had nothing that's kind of contradictory in a way like it starts off a particular way and they've had no good pr which means we just remember them as being violent dogs yeah i think a lot of people don't have any experience with the breed i, I think of our own story, you know, my own story with Ken on a couch and, and Rocky, the dog that we had that um, inspired us to, to create it. Uh, growing up, I didn't have any experience with pit bulls or pit bull breeds. My first dog was a German Shepherd and then I had a, a Husky. And when I was very young, I fell out of a tree and these two pit bulls were off the leash and they ran up to me and they didn't do anything, but my dad came out screaming and, and acting like a maniac to, to get the dogs away. But the dogs were, were friendly and it was just this fear-based reaction uh, that I don't know why he did or didn't have, but it instilled that fear in me, you know, because my dad was scared. Now I'm scared. Uh, yeah. And I didn't really have any other point of reference to, to change my mind about it. And then back in 2014, someone dumped a dog on the, a road close to where we were living and the dog was running around our, our wooded area for a couple weeks. And then one night I'm at a friend's house and I get a phone call from my, my fiance. And she says, Hey, we found a dog. I'm like, what do you mean you found a dog? Uh, this, this dog, this pit bull was running around our woods for a couple of weeks. We, uh, we lured him into our car with goldfish crackers. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> What, what 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 do you mean you lured a pit bull into your car with crackers? Oh, he's so friendly. He's he's tied to the tree at our house. <laughs> so you'll see him when he come when you come home. So I I drive home and it's nighttime and uh I take a lawn chair and I sit it in the yard and I see these two glowing eyes open in, in the darkness and start walking towards me. And this dog walked up, crawled into my lap. And this is not a small dog, right? It crawl, crawls into my lap and, and curls into the, the, the smallest ball and just goes to sleep. And I just kind of melted my heart. And I said, well, I guess you're staying, right? And I had three other dogs yeah. at the time. So we took him inside uh, to make sure he would get along. And I, it was like a ready-made family. The, the second he walked into the house, everybody got along. It was amazing. And over the next four years, he completely tore down every stereotype that you would think of uh, about pit bulls or pit bull breeds with regards to, I've never had a dog that dog that loved harder uh, and was more in tune with his people. Uh, he found my, my fiance had thyroid cancer, which the dog actually found. Uh, the dog was always at her neck kind of punching at it with his nose, going at it, going at it. And when things started going wrong, she went and told doctors and, what was happening and they and they found it and were able to treat it uh and rocky really he i think he really changed the hearts and minds of almost everyone he met uh with regards to just how hard he loved you you couldn't interact with the dog and not love him um and so any kind of negative stereotype you would have about the pit bull breeds 
when you met Rocky, you were like, I don't know what people are talking about. This is the sweetest dog, right? Uh, and so that kind of helped change my mind. And then in 2018, we let him out one night, completely normal dog. And when he came back in, he was really tired and lethargic and having a lot of trouble. And we just couldn't understand what, what happened out there when he just went to go to the bathroom. And um, it turns out he had something called IMHA, which is immunomediated hemocratic anemia, um, which is basically his blood cells attacking each other. And they don't really know what triggers it and it comes on. And and two weeks later, he, he passed. It, it's got like almost, I think, I believe 100% mortality rate. And, and there's really just nothing you can do. And it was really devastating uh, to myself and my family. He was young. He was only about five years old. So, you know, it was soul crushing. Uh, And at that time, as I was trying to deal with the grief and and figure out how to handle this, because this was also kind of like my therapy dog uh, for for me. Uh, So I was on Facebook a lot and social media, and I saw all these posts for dogs uh, that had been in the shelter for one, two, three years. And up to this point, I had no experience with nonprofit work. I had no experience with, with dogs really, other than owning them as, as part of the family. Uh, I'd never volunteered at shelters or, or had any idea. I, I just knew I loved dogs. Uh, and I knew I had a lot of pain, but I also knew that I didn't want the experience that I had with Rocky and to, to go to be wasted, you know, the impact that he had on changing our hearts and minds about the breed and making us basically fall in love with them. I, I wanted to make sure that somehow his work with us and other people carried on. So I'm, I'm on social media and I see these posts for dogs that have just been in the shelter for, for years. And they're almost a hundred percent pit bulls. I don't, I don't think I saw any of these posts for dogs that, that weren't pit bulls. Um, And I started really thinking hard about a shelter's business operations. You know, I think, I think I came to this nonprofit world with a very different approach. I think there's a lot of people who are passionate about a thing, but don't have a lot of experience with business operations, how to scale organizations, leadership, you know, even the business administrivia can be overwhelming when it comes to creating and running some of these organizations. And this is actually somewhere I do have a lot of experience. So from, from the defense industry, which is my kind of my, my day job, and this was my passion project. So I started thinking a lot about a, a shelter's business operations. And when I got out of the army, I had a, a stint as a chef. I went to Johnson and Wales and became a chef for a while. Uh, and I started drawing a lot of parallels between the restaurant industry or how a restaurant runs and a, and a shelter with regards to the percentage of revenue generating real estate that a restaurant has. So every table in a restaurant is a percentage of real estate. And it, you have to turn that table over several times in a night to, to be profitable and, and generate revenue. And a shelter's kennels are the same way. So if you have somebody that sits at a table all night, that table doesn't make any money. And similarly, if you have a dog that sits in a kennel, which is a percentage of that shelter's real estate for a year, the shelter doesn't generate any revenue out of that, that kennel, that percentage of real estate. 
if a dog's there for three years, just think about the impact that that has on on the revenue generation, but also how many other dogs might have been able to be helped or come through that percentage of real estate if that dog wasn't basically locking down that percentage of real estate. So that's kind of how I started thinking about the problem. And the reason I, I started drawing these parallels is I didn't have a lot of resources to, to help or do anything. Right. And I wanted to know, is there a way to make a macro impact on the business operations of a shelter if I had micro resources? And so I thought, well, maybe if I could get that one dog adopted, the dog that's been there for three years and kind of unlock that percentage of, of revenue generating real estate, that that could have a, a significant impact. Uh, and, you know, obviously we're not going to stop at one dog, but we're only doing one dog at a time just because of resources. So this is how I started thinking about it uh, with regards to how the original program for Ken on a Couch would start. I wanted to partner with a shelter, identify the dog that had been there longest, and I wanted to hyper-focus just on that one dog. And so I got with some local business partners and we kind of put together this, at the time I would say, makeshift incentive package with just random things uh, to give to someone if they adopted the dog that we sponsored. And I went to the local shelter, the Harford County Humane Society. And they had a dog there named Ace that had been there a year and a half. And I said, hey, this is my idea. I wanna, I wanna sponsor this dog. I'm gonna give you some marketing material to let people know that the dog sponsored. And if somebody adopts it, they get this incentive package. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna run a hyper-focused, basically a marketing campaign on social media just, just for this dog. You know, a shelter has to promote all their dogs. I wanted to hyper-focus on this one dog. And within two months, we had Ace adopted. And then we picked the next dog, got him adopted. The next dog got him adopted. Within one year, we had all of the long-term residents of the Harford County Humane Society adopted. So we're talking about, you know, four dogs, five dogs that we got adopted. It doesn't seem like a, a big number, but it represented eight, nine years of shelter life. So the impact that had on the shelter's ability to start churning more dogs through those kennels, you know, had a huge impact on their operations and we still work with them today. Um, and that's, that's kind of how we started. Um, yeah. And four years later, five years later, we're in four states, five shelters, and we're still expanding. You know, our goal is to get to all 50 states and we focus on one dog at a time uh, at each shelter and, you know, one shelter in each state until we can kind of collect them all and, and fill in, fill in the different states. Uh, and since we've started, we've added a couple more programs. We have a, a, a pretty robust uh, education component to our website, you know, resource library and training videos and things like that. We've spent up, we've, we've invested heavily in, in putting these resources on our site and, and building that out. Uh, and then we have a, a, a program that centers around events that get people out and active with their dog. So part of the re-education of the public is giving the public an opportunity to interact with these dogs. And so we host these walks on Facebook a couple times a year where 
people sign up for a Facebook group that they certainly raise a lot of funds for us also. And they walk one mile a day for 30 days with their dog. We have kennel to couch bandanas and things like that. And it gets people out with their dog in public. And it gives the public a chance to see these dogs not acting crazy, being good breed ambassadors. Uh, but the byproduct of that also is it's just a very healthy activity for people. It's very healthy for your dog. And there's this concept of play together, stay together. You know, the chances of you surrendering your dog to a shelter reduces dramatically if you're engaged in a lot of activities with your dog and you spend a lot of time doing these things. So there's a lot of byproducts of this walk other than just breed ambassadorship. Uh, so we have three programs now and we're always looking for, for ways to, to add more and expand and, you know, Obviously, there's always a resource constraint to these things, but um, yeah, that's kind of how we started and, and where we're at now. I'd be really curious about what goes on at the kennels, and my assumption anyway, Tom, is that you've almost got to prepare the dog for house life. If your focus is on the long-term residence, I mean, this is all in my head, but they may get used to being in a kennel if they've been there for one year two years however long it is is there any sense of like maybe training them rehabilitating them in a way getting them used to it's, it's definitely not in your head that's a real thing um one of the downsides of shelters is it's probably the worst environment for a dog to be displayed so that families want to adopt them it's very stressful it's very loud <laughs> I mean, it's really no different environment than prison for dogs. If you think about it, it's just a, a cold concrete floor with hopefully a bed or a blanket and a very confined space. And all the dogs are barking and the anxiety and stress is high. You know, we have a lot of dogs that, especially the dogs that we focus on, the dogs that have been in the shelter longest, uh, it has a real psychological impact on the dogs. And the longer they're there, they become almost institutionalized and they don't present well. So when you walk by the, the kennels and you're looking at the dog saying, who should we take home? There's this dog acting like a maniac uh, because he's been there for so long and it's so stressful. When you get the dog out of that environment, they're as sweet as can be. They're quiet. They're loving. They, and so it, you're right. It's, there is a psychological impact that the longer and the longer they're there, the harder it is to reverse some of the behaviors they learn. So I think one of the most important things for people to do when they adopt any dog is truly understand how the decompression period works for a dog afterwards, how long it takes a dog to one, just calm down, absorb its new environment, um, learn to trust its new environment, trust its new owners. There's, there's a very long decompression process. And I don't think that you jump into training right away. You have to let the dog calm down a bit. And you really shouldn't expose your dog to any people or things for a couple of weeks after you adopt them you, to just give them an opportunity to, to settle into the environment and then slowly introducing family and this and that. And definitely you don't want to just have people come over and start petting your new dog. And you have the, the decompression period is for the dog for sure, but it's also for you to learn 
about what triggers or what doesn't trigger your dog. How does the dog act around food? How does the dog act around people when it's getting food? Does the dog like to be touched on its rear end, you know, and scratched behind its ears, or maybe it doesn't? There's a very deliberate process that you should go through to just kind of orient yourself to your new dog and, and uh, give that dog time to get used to you and its new environment. And then you start slowly introducing things. After the decompression period, then you can start socializing your dog deliberately and slowly with other dogs and things of that nature. So that, that's true for any dog of any breed. It has nothing to do with pit bulls, but it's certainly a good point about the impact that shelters have on their psyche. I imagine there's some tells and it's probably different from dog to dog, which is why it's so complicated and you probably can't give any direct advice for people, but are there any like safe behaviors for want of a better word, where if they start behaving in this way, maybe we can start introducing something different to give them a chance to then get used to that again. Almost like the dogs have tells that you can pick up on that make you think, okay, we're ready to do something new now. Well, one thing about dogs in general, but specific to, to dogs as an animal is, is, I believe, their ability to communicate with you. You know, they're, they're the one animal that really has thousands of years of, of breeding into them that they're domesticated and meant to interact with people. And they, they really understand how to tell you what they like and don't like. Um, you know, certainly growling their posture, if the hair stands up on their back, they're, they're, all of these things are just their ways of communicating with you. Um, I recommend to anyone, if, if they can, to get help from a, a professional trainer to help understand your dog's cues. I mean, unless you're, unless you're very in tune and have a lot of experience with dog, most people don't have a lot of quote unquote experience with dogs. Their experience is, yeah, we had a dog growing up and that's, that doesn't mean you know anything about dogs, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, we had a car growing up. I'm not a mechanic, right? So <laughs> that's actually a good analogy. That's a good yeah, analogy putting I, it. There's lots of things that we are familiar with, but have no expertise with. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, it's like uh, operator versus technician. Like we know how to operate things. We know how to feed our dog. It doesn't know it doesn't make us a veterinarian. Right. So get professional help uh, to really understand your dog's cues, your behaviors and, and the professional help I'd say is most important when you decide that you want to start socializing your dogs with other dogs, because it's not just about understanding your dog. It's about understanding all the other dogs tells at the dog park or, or this or that. So uh, socialization can be a very slow, deliberate process. And, and certainly having a trainer help you with that is, is recommended. I know everybody may or may not have those resources, but it's, it's the safest way to go. And it can save you on a lot of veterinary bills, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's another thing about owning a dog that, or, or any pet for, for that matter, that people don't really appreciate until something happens vet bills are wildly expensive <laughs> um, yeah we yeah. just had emergency surgery on one of our dogs this weekend and the bill was eighteen thousand dollars for and he was in the hospital for a couple of days wow. and my recommendation 
to anyone who gets a, a dog or a cat or, or a pet, if you can, is please, please look into pet insurance. Um, it, it does cost a little bit each month, but I, I promise you that when you need to use it, the, the last thing that you want to have to do is make a life or death decision on your best friend based on the finances of the situation. It can be a, a crippling experience. And that, that's a kind of a component of what happened with Rocky. You know, we, we didn't have pet insurance. It wouldn't have mattered given the nature of what he had uh, and the mortality rate. But a lot of the things they wanted to try, they're like, oh, we can try this. We can try that. It'll be about $20,000. And you're like, wait, we just can't do that. You know, and yeah. having to yeah. say we just can't do that it can add so much pain to the experience that's that's already so hard. Um, so pet insurance, pet insurance, pet insurance, it, you know, it's it's just, it may seem like a lot, but normally you can probably pay your deductible just through the course of your annual medical bills that you file claims for. So when the time comes that you need to use it, I, I promise you any trip to the vet for anything starts at a thousand dollars, right? It doesn't, it doesn't even really matter what it is because when you get into stitches or anything, the anesthesia is hundreds of dollars before you even start them. Like there's so many factors that go into to the cost. Uh, I, I just, I certainly recommend it. And it can give you a real peace of mind that when the time comes that there's something maybe a little more catastrophic that you have the resources to to do these things. We had a cat or we have a cat. That's that's the best way to put it. We have a cat that had a an issue, I think two years ago, where he just decided to go on a hunger strike for like three or four months out of nowhere. And we didn't know what was wrong. We went here, we went there. The doctors didn't know. They said, just put him to sleep. They had a, he had a feeding tube in his neck and the doctors were saying, you know, if he doesn't start eating in a week, you might want to consider euthanasia. And we ended up taking him to the University of Pennsylvania, which has probably got one of the top veterinary hospitals in the world, in, in my opinion. And I said, he's insured. Let's just take him there and and see what they say. And they said, of course, he can live with a, a feeding tube. Of course, he can do that. What are you talking about? And they took great care of him. And that's a true veterinary hospital, not an ER. People should know the difference between that, too. There's your local vets and there's the the ERs, but those aren't hospitals, right? Those are emergency care centers, basically. Uh, you can there there are veterinary hospitals out there like UPenn, where it's no different than a a hospital for for humans, where they have an internal medicine section, they have neurology, they have all these teams of experts that can kind of come together. They have all the equipment there. When you go to the ER, it's like your dog needs an ultrasound, but you got to come back on Tuesday because our, our ultrasound guy is only here on Tuesday. A, if you take him to a veterinary hospital, all of those resources they can bring to bear immediately, just if you just as if you went to the hospital for an emergency. And so we took him there, and you know, two years later, it, he's with us, and he's it's like nothing ever happened. You know, he, right. he started he started eating again. The feeding tube came out, and if we didn't have, but that was twelve twelve thousand dollars, right? Wow. Uh, but I think it cost us $1,200 was what our responsibility was out of that. So being able to go up into the hospital and say, do whatever needs to be done, it's covered, is, is a huge peace of mind when, you, when you're when you a pet owner and 
you run into these life or death situations. Um, I think more often than not with animals, finances play the largest role in the decisions that we make on their health. Uh, and we would never make those decisions about people. You know, most people are, are most people hopefully are, are insured and, and have some sort of coverage. If not, you know, a hospital is still obligated to provide you life-saving care. Whereas for an animal, if you, if you can't afford it, they're not, they're not performing any procedures. So, you know, I, I think that's just a, a really big tip that I would, I, I preach to everyone that if, if they can, please, you know, remove that part of the decision-making process from your life and give yourself that peace of mind. It's been huge for us personally. We've used it several times. I guess that's what you're paying for as well, aren't you? You're paying for the peace of mind, not just the the medical care side of things. You're also paying for the ability to, as you say, walk into a hospital and say, it's all covered. Don't worry about it. Just do whatever Absolutely. you need to do. Absolutely. You know, the diagnostics on a medical situation itself, before you even get to a treatment, can can run thousands of dollars. You know, the dog that I just took to the hospital. It's like, we need to do an MRI. We need to do a CT scan. We need to do an ultrasound. These, I mean, these are, some of these tests are a couple thousand and just to figure out what's going on before you even start treating it. So, you know, you definitely, but you, you won't get to the root of the problem if, if you don't have these things. And the, the surgery that my dog just had was not even for what we took him in for. It was this life-saving surgery to remove something that they found during the course of the diagnostics for these other things. So yeah, certainly being able to say, do whatever needs to be done is, is a great, a great feeling in an otherwise really hard time when you're dealing with, you know, the anxiety of the possibility of losing your pet. Yeah. I, I imagine there's quite a, a strange situation for, potential dog owners or people that want to take a, a kennel pet with them is this kind of decompression process as you mentioned it's almost like once you get out what's the survival rate do they end up back in kennels what's the situation and it can be tough for a dog owner to be able to really know what that's like you know, as you said sometimes decompression can take forever maybe they never truly unlearn the kennel behavior in inverted commas because they've been so used to it they're so used they don't know how to respond to other dogs or people or places everything's new and their head just doesn't really know how to act or behave and maybe it's too busy trying to protect itself trying to protect you as the owner or well probably we don't think that they own you just yet it's so complicated that someone might not necessarily know how to take on the responsibility. Maybe they think it's going to be too hard for them to do it. Is there anything that you can think of that might help these people that they want to try to help? You know, they want to adopt one of these, these dogs and they want to give them a home and they want to look after them and play with them, make them a big part of the family. I think, some people may need a bit of extra help on on this front in terms of, okay, when we take it home, what is it going to be like? Because as a dog owner myself, it's confusing when you've had them from a young age as well, because they don't know what's happening. You don't know what's happening. We're all just figuring it out together. And you're hoping that even when bad things happen, they're not that bad. 
you know the consequences aren't exactly dire in some cases especially when they when they're tiny and they try and bite you but they can't because they're too small to really hurt you at all it's like watching animals play fight knowing full well that they can't hurt each other because they're too small you know they're not exactly dangerous beasts when they're less than six months old so it it's a different story all the time and they're growing so quick and by the time they're two they're these huge animals and you think you only had them two years ago where did this animal come from <laughs> and it's so fascinating and yet it happens so quickly it's almost like when you're a teenager everything's changing so fast everything's growing sure. so fast you've no idea what's happening but it's like that for life with a dog really because yeah. they, they grow so quick what can you tell people that want to own pets that will help them with this because some people are listening to me thinking by me i don't want to go through that but i try and help people try and help them think okay a dog is a good idea a kennel dog is a good idea how would you help them i, I encourage everyone to adopt from shelters uh, and and don't go to breeders but anyone who adopts any dog should go into it understanding that a dog is like adopting a a five-year-old child, right? Um, and I say that from a dog's intelligence level also. I mean, you're, you're basically dealing with a toddler, or, or I don't know what the age of toddler is, but you're, you're dealing like a, with like a three- to five-year-old um, that can't communicate with you verbally. So they grow up quick, like you said, just like a three- to five-year-old grows up quick. But if you think about it in terms of, adopting a five-year-old when you adopt a dog all the things that come with adopting a five-year-old person come with the dog you have to feed it you have to care it for it or you you need to house it you need to pay its medical bills you you, you need to send it to school quote unquote you know you should get training for the dog you need to do all the same things sure it's at a little bit lesser of a level but all those components all the responsibilities are still there um if you're going to make them part of the family and just like being a new parent, being a new dog owner is a learning process. The difference is when you adopt some of these adult dogs, uh, you know, you have to understand that the way a dog acts, the way a dog behaves, just like people, like just like, just, just like if you were to go out and adopt a, a child, you don't know what that child went through before you came into their life. You don't know what that dog went through before you came into their life. That dog might've been kicked onto the street by a guy that beat it every day when the doorbell rang, right? And so now when the doorbell rings, the dog goes crazy, but you don't, don't, don't just return the dog. Like you have to take time to understand that a dog's behavior is a sum total of its life's experience just like our behaviors, our actions, our decisions that we make are based on the sum total of our life experience up to that point. A dog's no different. You have to take some time to unpack what those experiences were. That's why the decompression period is so important. You're learning, you know, how does the dog react to doorbells are a great example or the doorbell on TV and the dog goes crazy, you know, run into the door, right? It, you have to kind of go through this learning process. I encourage people, like I said, get help, uh, get a trainer if you can. If you can't get a trainer, one of the things we do at Counter the Couch, if you if you go on our website, you'll see the what we call the Pibble package. 
And it's basically just a box of resources now that we send home with anybody that adopts one of the dogs that we sponsor. And there's some things in there like a coupon for a, a freedom no pull harness from one of our partners, which is like a really good harness for strong bully breeds. You know, it stops them from pulling as much. It, it helps you manage them. There's a, a thing that's like a licky mat where you spread peanut butter on it and they lick it. But that's really about mental stimulation. You know, these are good things to, to kind of keep the dog engaged. But we also sent home four books in our in our box that covered topics like love has no age limit, how to deal with senior dogs or play together, stay together, which is, you know, the importance between uh, the importance of physical activity and the bond that it creates with you and your dog. Uh, these are some of the things that you you do. And there's a couple other topics like uh, training the dog to go to the bathroom outside and this and that at any age. You know, education is always the key. You, you have to, you can't adopt a dog and just expect the dog to behave the way that you think it should without you doing anything. It takes work. It's a lot of work. Uh, and training is a lot of work and a lot of repetition. The good thing is dogs usually, I, I'd say most dogs, any, any breed are very responsive to training. You know, they're not dumb animals. They are smart. Just like a, just like a five-year-old learns quickly. Think about how, like how a five-year-old absorbs the world and how quickly they pick up on things. And, you know, now it's, now, now it's talking, now it's saying words, now it's stringing words together. You're like, wow, it's so crazy to watch this this living thing <laughs> yeah. kind of absorb everything around it and process it mentally. Well, dogs do that too. They're very smart animals and uh, they pick up on your mannerisms. They pick up on your energy. How to, It's not about how a dog reacts to other people. How do you react to other people? The dog's going to react the same way. You know, so much of a dog's behaviors in, in the home are, are cued into our behaviors and our energy. So understanding all of those things is, is key to making sure that you don't have to return your dog to the shelter because my dog's doing this. It's like, well, what are you doing to stop it? I mean, I, we are the ones that are responsible for our dog's behavior ultimately and legally, I should I should say. So <laughs> yeah, understanding yeah. all of those things going into it uh, is important. Now, that all sounds like a lot of work. I mean, it can be, but anybody who, has owned dogs, I think also understands the rewards from that. And I, I don't think you'll, I don't think there's a lot of things you can do that are more rewarding or make you feel like a dog will make you feel, uh, after you've given it a loving home and, um, and you've taken that dog out of a bad situation in the shelter and kind of turn that dog's life around. Um, so you know, the unconditional love that you can get from a dog, I think is, is almost unlike anything you can get from any other animal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly recommend it. I, I think it's important to understand what your responsibilities are. And when you, I think when you take ownership of the responsibility and you take ownership of the understanding that it's your job to get that dog, I think that, will help a lot of people, you know, weather the storm of 
the dog's having some accidents inside or this or that. Like, like I, you know, you've accepted that this is going to be part of the process. So, um, and, and dogs learn quickly. It's not, we're not talking about, it takes three years to train a dog to go to the bathroom outside. You know, they, they catch on very quickly, but repetition is key. Consistency is key to, to training any dog to do anything. So, yeah, I mean, there's responsibility like anything else, but you know, the rewards are there and any dog owner, I, I, everybody thinks they have the best dog, right? My dog's the best and they're <laughs> and every, and everyone is right. Right. So, because that's how their dog makes them feel. So those, those are the rewards, you know, they're, they're great. It's definitely worth noting that a lot of the dog doing things comes down to how you as the human initiated or started that behavior to happen so we can say like you know they go in the toilet inside all the time so okay well do you have anything consistently makes them think that they're going the toilet outside so we we have something that we tend to use although sometimes um the, the the dog that that we have um she also relates to just going outside so it's not necessarily just going to the toilet it's going outside so she'll go and there's less mess inside now which is fantastic but she doesn't necessarily register that if she needs to go to the toilet she can let us know by you know wanting to go outside to go outside to do anything like play run around have a laugh with the kids that sort of thing so it's not too focused at the moment and i don't think it should be in a way because you wanted to enjoy going outside you don't want it to go oh, here we go call it outside here we go again so i think it's that understanding that it does come with a lot of confusion and maybe it's a lesson of two evils that you've just got to deal with you know that sort of thing i don't want the doctor we have to sort of go oh, toilet got to go outside I want them to enjoy going outside and then not having any mess inside is a byproduct of enjoying their time outside. So it's a, it's a weird, massive balancing act of the different responsibilities and how to get what you would like while they get what they would like. And most relationships are like that though. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that while a dog isn't a person, they have some traits of people they have some things that humans would have and um it's definitely a learning curve of trying to process how they communicate and learn about them makes it easier that's Mm -hmm. one thing i found the more you can learn about them the easier it is because you'll know when they do this that's what it means when they do that that's what it means and i found that it's a bit more straightforward with a dog it's very like if you try to learn about people they'll change on you straight away or they'll have three different things that all mean the same thing a bit like language in a way you know you've got a word and there's really no deception with dogs yeah they they say what they mean right yeah Uh, when they're when they're telling you something that's that's what it means uh so and and every dog's different and every dog communicates different so you do you do you have to spend a lot of time just learning your dog's mannerisms and and their cues but once you learn them it's it becomes second nature it's not a it's not an act once you learn your dog's cues it's not something you have to think about anymore you will know and you don't really have to spend a lot of time saying is my dog lying to me you know is it does it really (laughs) mean what i think it means no they don't like 
it just becomes a natural communication and there's no deception and you just, you know, so it, it is a learning curve, but once you're there, you're there. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change all that much either. If it does change, it's more gradual and you tend to pick up on it much faster than they change. So as they grow and change and adapt, you're able to easily keep sure. up with it as they, as the doc matures, as you mature, you just get used to being around each other. It makes everything easier. Everything. And a lot of times easy. when a dog's behavior changes rapidly, that's, that's telling you something also that maybe there's something wrong. You know, if a dog doesn't want to go outside anymore, or if a dog's not hungry anymore, but he's usually a, a chow hound, like all of these things are cues for something else. Uh, you know, I'm not feeling well or, something of that nature and that's when you know that's when the pet insurance comes in unfortunately (laughs) definitely yeah i think i think being able to get pet insurance and health insurance for for pets and dogs and pit bulls specifically is definitely going to be like a long-term investment it's always going to benefit it's always going to help you when as you say if bills can be in the tens of thousands and yet you pay maybe, I don't know, upwards of uh, $50, $100, $200 or pounds a month, it's still worth it because when the bill comes around, you're going to be hoping that it covers it. Because Yeah, I mean, be I'll give you an example. I think I pay 50, bucks, $50 a month and my coverage is for up to $30,000, which for, for vet bills, is a, that'll cover most things. You're talking about like chemotherapy and stuff, you're, you're covered. Uh, and my deductible is a thousand dollars for the year, and then I'm responsible for ten percent of the bills. So normally, that thousand dollar deductible is not something that I spend out of pocket when there's an emergency. Normally, that's covered through like little things throughout the year. I have a dog that has medication for skin issues so every time we fill a prescription that chips away at that deductible a little bit things of that nature so by the time it comes for a trip to the er things like that the deductible is already met and so i'm only responsible for 10 percent of the of the bill and one other tip i wanted to give about insurance i think this is hugely important because i just experienced this myself go get the insurance the day you get your dog because unlike people uh, pet insurance does preclude pre-existing conditions. So if you wait, if, if you've had your dog for a couple of years and it's been going to the vet for a couple of years and there's two years worth of medical records and then you go to get insurance, they will look at all of those records to see what they're not going to cover going forward because the dog had those conditions before you got the insurance. Get the pet insurance day one. And I say that the dog that we just had emergency surgery on um, a couple of years ago, they found a, a mass in his intestine that was, it, it seemed very benign. Uh, and we tracked it over the years and it, it just was there, but it wasn't doing anything. This time around, when we took him to the, to the hospital, we actually took him there because he was having trouble with his back legs and, and walking. Uh, he was slipping on the floor and, and things of that nature. And we did get him insured. Uh, but when we got the insurance, they said, you know, he's got this mass that we've identified. So your dog's insured and he's covered, but except for whatever this mass is. And because we don't know what the mass is, 
you know, we can't cover him for anything that's cancer or like tumor or mass related. That's all kind of considered. And they said, you know, if you got a biopsy and you identified what that mass was, we can narrow the, the pre-existing condition down to that specific thing. But without that biopsy, and it was in a very complicated spot, so it would have been very hard to, it would have been a big procedure to try to get this biopsy. We didn't want to put them through it if it wasn't bothering them. So fast forward, now we go to get his back and his legs looked at, and they were doing the, the diagnostics, and they, they did identify some, some disc damage and spina something. He's got an infection in his spinal cord that was really affecting him. But during the course of that, they determined that the mass had become necrotic and was a imminent threat to perforate which would have caused a lot of internal damage. So this turned into an emergency surgery to remove the mass and that part wasn't covered. So, you know, this 18,000 that we spent, a significant portion of it won't be covered uh, because it was a pre-existing condition. All the rest of the stuff, the neurological things, the, the spinal cord, all of that's covered. Uh, but still this one thing now, that's all to say, if I would have just gotten the insurance the day I would have gotten them, everything would have been covered because it wasn't identified. So get if you're going to get a dog, get insurance right away before you start identifying and all these things go on their medical records and then they won't be covered. Um, I think that's just a, a huge factor in whether your insurance will be valuable to you, right? Yeah, uh, um, yeah. And with dogs, there's a certain age, and I don't really know what it is, but at a certain age, insurance won't cover them anymore because they're too old. So, and they, they know that some stuff is going to start going wrong. You know, everything's a pre-existing condition at that point. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's the big tip. Uh, do it, do it early, um, as young as possible and down the road, you know, if I, that, that $50 a month is nothing when it saves you $20,000, you know, when there's a procedure to be done. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Tom, it's been great to have you as a guest on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. If people wanted to get involved with Kennel to Couch, how can people do that? So it could be websites, social media. How can people get involved? Sure. So first, I just encourage everyone to visit our website, which is kenneltocouch.org. Uh, and that's T-O, not the number two. So kennel, T-O, couch.org. Um, we have a lot of great resources on there. You can see all the shelters we're partnered with. You can see all the dogs we're currently sponsoring and in the information on how to find them at their partner shelters. We have a great resource library. We have a great blog, which puts out information all the time, not just on breed education, but just general information that I think any dog owner would be interested in. Um, we we're pretty active with that. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're we're on all the channels. You can find Kennel to Couch, and we have a we have a pretty large following on social media. We have a little over a hundred thousand followers on Facebook and and growing. Um, we have a couple things coming up uh, very very soon, um, and believe on the 24th, we're going to uh, launch a campaign to promote the Kennel to Couch t-shirts once again. We haven't done a run of shirts in about four years, 
uh, our t-shirts are, are, are a great program. We've partnered with a company called Nine Line Apparel, which is a veteran-owned uh, company here in the U.S. They do a lot of stuff in the veteran community. So if you want to support veterans and veteran-owned businesses, but also want to help save some dogs, I, I encourage everyone to be on the lookout when we launch our, our t-shirt sales. And they're, they're really cool shirts. Um, we also have our Bourbon for Bullies raffle coming up that's going to be launching here today. Uh, or I think, I think it already launched on the website. We've partnered with a company called Raffleworthy, and we've put together a line of some of the rarest bourbons that you can find, a, a full vertical of Pappy Van Winkle and the Buffalo Trace Antique Series. So we're talking about $30,000 worth of bourbon uh, for these nine bottles. Uh, we'll be raffling those off, and there's some other prizes that, like, that go along with it. But the last time we did one of these, it was very successful, and they raised a lot of money for us. And they're, they're, they've been an absolute great partner. Uh, so that is launching any, any day now. So be on the lookout to get your tickets for, for the bourbon raffle. Um, I believe in August, we'll have our next walk, the, the big, the big, uh, walking event that we do last year, we had over a hundred thousand people walk a mile a day for a month, uh, wow. to support this. So, I mean, they are, they're big events. We did a couple walks. I think one of the walks alone had 50, 60,000 people, uh, participate. So those are really cool events. I, I think we're looking to do that again in August. Um, other than that, we're, we're raising money throughout the year. And I wish we had a little more time. Kennel on a Couch is really operating differently than any other nonprofit that I've, I've run across. We're almost an entirely digitally run organization, which allows us to scale quite easily. And we've decided that the way that we're going to scale our operations is through our endowment that we created. So if you go on our website, there's a tab for the fur, the fur ever fund. And basically what we want to do is we want to make sure that when we add a shelter to our program, that it's funded in perpetuity. I don't, I don't want to live paycheck to paycheck. And I don't ever want to tell a shelter that, Hey, you were part of our program this year, but we can't afford you next year. So as our endowment grows and our ability to basically live off the interest that's produced out of our endowment expands, we know that that revenue is expanded in perpetuity. So as that grows, we'll add shelters to our program. And all of these big fundraisers we do, we, we put the funds in the endowment to expand that way. So it's a, it's a slower growth process, but it ensures that we're, we're funded forever. Yeah, so the forever fund. Uh, and if you go onto the website and take a look at that, you can also take a look at basically what our roadmap is for expansion. Uh, what are we going to do with that money? So all of that's laid out there. So if you want to get involved, uh, certainly take part in one of these programs that we have or, or you know, hit the donate button. Um, and just educate yourself and your friends and the public on, on the misconceptions about the breed and just strive to be a good dog owner and, and all of the responsibilities and joys that come with that and adopt and don't shop. Yeah. That's, that's the, the big motto. Please, please adopt. You know, there's, I think over a million pit bulls put down every year alone, just in that breed or euthanized just in the United States uh, because of just overcrowding and breeding overbreeding. So, you know, one of the kind of thoughts behind kennel on a couch is we, we don't need more shelters. We need to get dogs out of the shelters. 
So, you know, we're really focused on getting those dogs out, not putting more dogs back in. Um, and yeah, go adopt a dog and enjoy. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Tom, it's been great to have you on. I appreciate it, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Mike, thanks so much for having us and, and giving us a platform to talk.